Ezekiel chapter 24, verses 1 through 14 is as far as we're going to get tonight. Ezekiel 24, verses 1 through 14. It says, In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid seeds to Jerusalem this very day, and utter a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Set on the pot, set it on, pour in water also, put in the pieces of meat and all the good pieces, the thigh and the shoulder, fill it with choice bones. Take the choicest one of the flock, pile the logs under it, boil it well, see also its bones in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it, and whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice, for the blood, of, blood she has shed is in her midst. She put it on the bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground to cover it with dust, to rouse my wrath, to take vengeance. I have set on the bare rock the blood she has shed that it may not be covered. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city. I also will make the pile great. Keep on the logs, kindle the fire, boil the meat well, mix in the spices and let her bones be burned up. Then, it, then set it empty upon the coals that it may become hot and its copper may burn, that its uncleanness may be melted in its corrosion, cons- in its corrosion consumed. She has wearied herself with toil. Its abundant corrosion does not go out of it into the fire with its corrosion. On account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you and you were not cleansed from your uncleanness, you shall not be cleansed anymore till I have satisfied my fury upon you. I am the Lord. I have spoken. It shall come to pass. I will do it. I will not go back. I will not spare. I will not relent. According to your ways and your deeds, you will be judged, declares the Lord God. Now, if you've been with this study for a while, you know, we've been at it for quite a few months. We've been studying that there was a judgment coming on the city of Jerusalem, and the final judgment was coming, and prophet Ezekiel has been being used to God to prophesy to the exiles in Babylon that because of the wickedness of Jerusalem and Judah, that there's going to be a final judgment on the city. And, and Ezekiel has been saying for a while that this was going to happen. Jeremiah has been prophesying, as you know, in Jerusalem that it was going to happen. Isaiah had been prophesying in Jerusalem that it was going to happen. Well, it is now finally happening. Where we are tonight, instead of the judgments coming, look at verse 1. In the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, write down the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. Now, if you remember, as we've been using, we're not going to go back there and look, but in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, the timeline of measurement is the time from when he was exiled and taken into captivity in 597 B.C. Starting from that time period, if you, use, if you do the math, you'll find out that this is January 15th, 588 B.C. The day that he was to mark down is January 15th, 588 B.C., when finally the judgment on Jerusalem has, gone, has come, and King Nebuchadnezzar has begun the siege of Jerusalem. Now, the siege is going to last 18 months and culminate in 586 B.C., but the long-prophesied judgment on Oholibah's sin had begun. So, you know, we've been in here all, all the time looking about how the judgment's coming, the judgment's coming, the judgment's coming. Guess what's happening tonight? It's here. The judgment is here. Go to Jeremiah 39. Let me show you what I mean. I'm going to just read a couple of quick accounts of the actual day of that judgment in its beginning. <clears throat> Jeremiah 39, look at verses 1 and 2. 
It says, in the ninth year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. In the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, and on the ninth day of the month, a breach was made in the city. So you see, when Zedekiah was in his ninth year of his reign, the siege began. When it was in the eleventh year of his reign, the siege finally broke through, and they, which was, like I said, 18 months later. Jump over to chapter 52 of Jeremiah, and look at verses 1 through 11. Jeremiah 52, verses 1 through 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon, and in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem, and they laid siege to it, and they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah, and on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of the war fled and went out from the city by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains. And the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. So here we see two accounts of the actual day of the siege of Jerusalem. It begins in 588, finishes in 586. Now, if you remember, and if not, it's okay, I'm going to help you remember In our study of Ezekiel, we've been watching God use Ezekiel to use these different word pictures and symbolisms to prophesy of what was going to be coming in this judgment. In other words, go back to Ezekiel chapter 4, and let me show you what I mean. Do you remember way back in our study when God told Ezekiel to take a brick and write the name Jerusalem on it, and then take dirt and build siege works around the brick? If you don't, it's okay. We've been in this study for quite a while. But in Ezekiel chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 3. Ezekiel chapter 4. And it says, And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it and build a siege wall against it and cast it a mound up against it, set camps also against it and plant battering rams against it all around. And you take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city, And set your face toward it, and let it be in the state of siege, and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. So remember, back when we began our study, God was showing Ezekiel how to give a picture of this siege work. uh, Sorry, this attack was going to happen on Jerusalem. The siege was going to happen. He was told to take a brick, write the name Jerusalem on it. Then he was to take dirt, build siege works against it, and battering rams and all this stuff. So as he built this little diorama, remember, they're in Babylon. He's showing the captives that this is what God said is going to happen to Jerusalem. By the way, we already just read it. What happened? They built the siege works, and they began to attack it. We're not going to take the time to read it, but in verses 4 through 8 in chapter 4, remember Ezekiel was told to lie on his side with his back toward the city, so many days on one side, and then so many days on his other side, but it's symbolically saying, I'm not even going to be looking at you. God had turned his back on the city. We Look at verses 9 through 17 also. 
He was told to make Ezekiel bread to show of the coming famine. Chapter 4, verses uh, 9 and following. And it says, And you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them in a single vessel and make your bread from them. During the number of the days that you lie on your side, 390 days you shall eat it. And your food you shall eat be by weight. 20 shekels a day from day to day you shall eat it. And water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hen. From day to day you shall drink, and shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in the sight, in their sight on human dung. And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean among the nations where I will drive them. <clears throat> then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up till now I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I assign to you cow's dung then instead of human dung, on which you may prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this, that they may lack bread and water, and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. Remember how we read in chapter 39 and chapter 52 in the siege of Jerusalem? What happened by the end of the 18 months? There was a famine in the city, and it got so severe at the same time that the breach was made in the wall, people were just trying to run for their lives to get out of the city. Just like God said there was going to be a famine years before, the famine actually happened. Also, and we're going to look at that real quickly in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, Ezekiel was told to cut his hair and to burn a third of it. Cut a, take the next third and cut it up with a sword. And then take the other third and scatter it to the wind, cutting some of that with the sword, but also keeping a remnant in his robe. Look at chapter 5 again, verses 1 through 4. And you, O son of man, take a sharp sword and use a barber's razor. Pass it over your head and your beard. Then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are completed. And a third part you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city. In the third part you shall scatter to the wind and I will unsheathe the sword after them. And you shall take from these a, these a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe. And of these again, you shall take some and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. And from there, a fire will come out into all the house of Israel. So if again, here he was told to take and cut all of his hair off, his beard and his head, take that hair, measure it into three groups. One third of it, he was to do what with it? Just burn it. They were going to be burnt in the city. And if you remember, the city was burned and all the things were destroyed. Another third, he was to take and just cut it up with a sword and they were just to be killed. Another third was just to be scattered to the wind, chasing some of those with the sword. Again, a picture of the fact that one-third of the Jews were going to be escaping from this siege and this attack on Jerusalem. Some of them would be killed in that process. But he would also take a small portion of those hairs and to tuck it into his robe and protect it. Again, as we've already done in our study, God always keeps a remnant for what his purposes are in the future. Now, the reason, there's more. I could go further. You probably remember there's been a lot of pictures like this that God has been given Ezekiel to give but the reason I remind you of these, the reason I take you from chapter 24 all the way back to chapter 4 and chapter 5, is to remind you that everything God said he was going to do, he did. And I say this for a reason. There are a lot of prophecies about what God's going to do to the nations in the last days that are coming. The judgment on all the nations, especially because of how they treated Israel. And I just want you to understand that just like God said all these things were going to happen and they literally happened, and he didn't miss one little thing, everything that God said he's going to do in the judgment of the nations and judgments of the world, which is coming very, very soon, is going to literally happen. Every little thing. 
But now, go back to chapter 24. Ezekiel's given another word picture. On this day that the siege has begun, he's given another word picture in these verses. He's told to take an old, rusty, corroded pot and to cook meat and bones in it with water. As you're about to see, the pot is Jerusalem and the meat and the bones are the people of the city. And as the food is cooking in it, Ezekiel is to take some of those pieces and just throw them on the ground and not to cover up the blood of the meat with the dirt. And we're going to explain what that is in just a second because that's a huge deal. But go with me and look at chapter 24, verses 6 through 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose corrosion is in it and whose corrosion has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making any choice. For the blood she has shed is in her midst. She put it on the bare rock. She did not pour it out on the ground to cover it with dust, to rouse my wrath, to take vengeance. I have set on the bare rock the blood she has shed that it may not be covered. So to make sure you're with us here, because we're about to go on a fun little journey here. To make sure we're all together, Ezekiel now is given another word picture to do. And a little illustration in his prophecy. As the city is being besieged on that day. Remember, they're in Babylon while this is going on. He's to take an old corroded pot, which represents what? Jerusalem. And he's to take meat, and he's to cut it up and put it in the pot with water and spices. And he's to set a fire. He's to start boiling the meat. The pieces represent what? The people of the city. While it's cooking, and he's burning the bones down, and things are just getting burnt up, he's to take the meat out and just throw it onto the ground. And let the blood hit the ground, and don't cover up the blood when it hits the ground. Now, this is important. I cannot stress to you enough the importance of taking the time to study the whole of Scripture. Because if you were to just read that, you would think, okay, that's interesting. He's just being just kind of careless with the meat. But there's something here that goes all the way back to Leviticus, and we're going to get there in just a second. I shared with a group last night, and I will say with you as well, I'm not against young guys being preachers. I was one myself. I started preaching when I was 19. But I know the Bible also talks about the fact that pastors and preachers aren't supposed to be new converts. Because there's, there's a danger. When we're young, we're zealous. But we lack what? We lack knowledge. We, lack, you know, we have a zeal without knowledge. And, I, and God's able to get his stuff done with people that don't know what they're doing, and he's done it through me for, for years. But there's a lot of danger out there with people, especially nowadays with the Internet and social media. Anybody can be a preacher. Anybody can build a platform. Anybody can have their own blog or whatever. And there are people out there that are just preaching things, but they're just taking a verse here or a verse there and building doctrine. The longer I've been studying the Word of God, the more I've come to realize Almost everything you read is already here somewhere else for a reason. And so as I was studying this and God said, take the pieces and just throw them on the ground and don't cover the blood when it hits the ground. I, in my study, realized that's not the first time God talked about that. So go with me back to Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17, look at verses 10 through 17. <clears throat> if anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, 
I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and I will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, You shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off, and every person who eats what dies of itself, or what is torn by beasts, it's roadkill, whether he is native or sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. So here, God in the law of Moses that he's given here in the book of Leviticus tells them, I don't want any of you Jews or any sojourners in your midst to eat blood. And we're going to get back to why in just a second. But along with that, he said that if you're out hunting and you kill an animal... I want you to spill its blood on the ground, but don't just let it lay there. Cover it up. Because blood is special. It's not to be treated as just nothing. Blood is sacred. Blood, as we see here, the life is in the blood. But what, what does God say to Ezekiel in chapter 24? Take the pieces out, throw them on the ground, and what? Don't cover it up. Don't treat it as special because they have not treated blood as special their whole time and therefore they're going to be treated. Go for it. Is the covering up symbolic of like a burial, some kind of ceremonial? Yes, it's, it's treated with, with respect. Yes, a very good way to put it. It's a burial treated with respect. Now here's what we're going to do tonight. As I was doing this study and I realized chapter 24 went back and correlated with chapter 17, I started to have a little bit of a bellyache. Because there's something here that is so cool, I can't just read it and go back to Ezekiel. So I'm going to tell you, we're going to chase a rabbit tonight. And I've told you before, I'm not for chasing rabbits when you preach, unless two criteria are met. If you chase a rabbit, can you catch it? And if you catch it, does it taste good? And folks, we're about to chase a rabbit tonight that is very, very catchable, and it tastes awesome. I can't touch on the life is in the blood without really going into a full study on this. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Oh, we'll be back to Ezekiel chapter 24. And by the time we're done tonight, we'll finish up to verse 14. But I want to talk to you tonight about progressive revelation. If you don't know what that is, it's okay. Progressive revelation is when God reveals truth a little at a time. And early in history, he'll give a little bit of a picture. But then later on, he'll give a little more and a little bit more. Isn't that what Ezekiel's been doing in all his prophecies, progressive revelation? He'll say, hey, this is coming, and then a little bit more information, then a little bit more. So when we see God say here in Leviticus chapter 17 that you're not to eat blood because life is in the blood. Oh, and there's another reason why they're not to eat blood. Look closely again at verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. 
So there's two things that come out of this passage here in Leviticus 17. God says life is in the blood, and God has given the blood to make atonement for our souls. Now, is this the first time that God tells us about blood? No. Remember, progressive revelation means a little bit here, a little bit more, a little bit more. So let's go back to the first time that God ever really mentions blood, and it's in Genesis chapter 9. Go to Genesis chapter 9. That's one of my favorite passages of Scripture, because some of you may or may not know this, but before the flood, man didn't eat meat. Man only ate vegetables, just like the animals only ate vegetables, and man only ate vegetables. All these people for their years have been looking at Tyrannosaurus Rex, and I believe the Bible teaches without question that dinosaurs lived on the earth. But they weren't carnivores. The, the dinosaurs were destroyed in the flood. And the Bible says that all the animals only ate vegetables before the flood. After the flood is when animals started eating animals, and we were allowed to eat animals. Look at Genesis chapter 9. God blessed Noah and his sons, this is right after the flood, and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand. They are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be for you, be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. And for your lifeblood, our blood, I'll require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it from every man for, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his image. So now, here, it's there. the flood is over. God has destroyed all of mankind except for Noah and his family. They're starting over here, if you will. God says, okay, I tell you what. Like I told you before, when you only ate vegetables, now you can have meat. I'm going to put a fear of you in the animals, and you can have meat. But when you eat the animals, don't eat the blood, because the blood is its life. And he says, by the way, if man kills another man, because man was made in the image of God, I'm going to have a re- hold them accountable for the life of that man that they kill. And if an animal kills a man, I'm going to hold that animal accountable for killing a man because man was made in the image of God. But here in Genesis 9, God gives us a little picture. He says, don't eat the blood because life is in the blood. Chris. You got it. We, again, we could take the whole next two weeks and really deal with it. It's not mentioned specifically, but it's also pictured in Genesis 3 when God provides covering for Adam and Eve when they sinned with the animal skins. And when he provided covering, well, guess what had to happen to that animal in order for their covering to be made? There's all these pictures. Exactly. The blood speaks from the ground when Cain and Abel's situation happened. But here we see a picture where God gives the first picture that life is in the blood. Now, let me just say this to you just as a a quick little aside. Hopefully, nowadays, in the knowledge we have of the body and all that stuff, we understand that if you don't have blood, you don't have life. God has designed the life's in the blood. And me right now going through chemo treatments, what they're doing is injecting stuff into my bloodstream to kill whatever it is that they're trying to kill. My blood doesn't feel good. i got to be honest with you. I don't feel real healthy because of what's going on in my blood. But thank God I'm not living from my blood. There's somebody else's blood we're going to talk about in a second here, and we're going to get to that. But we get a progressive revelation. Life is in the blood. 
But there's also another progressive revelation in the scriptures between Genesis 9 and Leviticus 17. What was added, by the way, in Leviticus 17? Because Genesis 9 says life is in the blood. Leviticus 17 said life was in the blood. What was added in Leviticus 17? I have chosen the blood for atonement. That's important because life is in the blood and the blood will make atonement for your sins. Go with me to Exodus, though, chapter 12. Between Genesis 9 and Leviticus chapter 17, we have what happens in Exodus chapter 12. See, Leviticus was written while they were in the wilderness. The law was given then, but while they're still in Egypt, God does something else here, though, with blood in Exodus chapter 12. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout all your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So here we know the Passover is instituted, and they were to take this spotless lamb, and they were to kill it, and they were to take the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house. And God said, whenever I see the blood, I'm going to pass over and you'll be spared. So now God gives a little bit further of a picture. We've already seen that, that blood is the life is in the blood, but now in Exodus 12, he shows them that somehow, some way, the blood of this lamb is going to protect them from when the judgment comes. They apply it by faith and put it on the door, and they're spared. Chapter 17 of Leviticus comes next, progressive revelation. He tells them again, life is in the blood, but also I've now given it to you as an atonement for your sins, covering of your sins. Now we're not going to take the time to turn there and look at all the places. Like I said, this could take weeks and months if we did a full study of this. But you know God set up in the law of Moses many different ceremonies and sacrifices. Some were to be bulls, and some were to be goats, and some were to be lambs, and some were to be turtle doves, and there were different types of sacrifices. But Hebrews gives us a little bit more information. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10 for a little bit more progressive revelation. By the way, as you're turning to Hebrews chapter 10, you do remember, and I'm jumping around in progressive revelation right now, that John the Baptist looks and sees Jesus walking by, and in John chapter 1 verse 29, what does he do when he points to Jesus? He says, behold, what? The Lamb of God who 
takes away the sin of the world. Again, progressive revelation, putting it all together. As you put it all together, the gospel becomes very, very clear. In Hebrews chapter 10, listen though to verses 1 through 18. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For Listen closely, another progressive revelation here. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, what did he say in Leviticus? It's an atonement. It's a covering. But now we see that it will never take it away. Because if those sacrifices were able to take away their sin, they wouldn't have to keep doing it because their sins would have been taken away. But the fact that they had to keep doing them over and over and over shows that their sins were never taken away. They were just covered. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and he's quoting from the Old Testament now, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he, meaning Jesus, said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, the one he's established, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Don't miss that. The sacrificial system which had been set up by God was to be a picture of the reality which is found in Christ. Did those, the blood of those animals take away their sin? No, it covered them for a period of time, so they could be in the presence of God, so they could go to the temple, so they could worship in God's presence. By the way, I think that's part of the reason why there's going to be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. As you do a study, you'll see there's going to be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. And people have said, well, it's just like a reminder, like our Lord's Supper. I actually think there's going to be another reason. Because there's going to be humans who are still living on the earth, right? Who make it through the, millennial, uh, so through the tribulation period into the millennial kingdom, who won't be redeemed like us. And those who have been born during that time, in order to be in the presence of Jesus, there's going to have to be this covering. I think the animal sacrifices are going to be the covering for those humans that aren't redeemed yet. Yes, sir? The covering until when? Until they get redeemed. Because people during the millennial kingdom still sin and still die. Everybody that's in the millennial kingdom, those of us who are going to be there who have already been redeemed, we'll live forever and ever and all that. But the the humans that are born during that time, it says in Isaiah chapter 65 that if someone lives to be 100 and die, they'll be considered an infant. People live for a long time, but people die during that time period. But going back with me, keep reading now. So in verse 10, and by that will, by Jesus' New Testament, if you will, this new will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So when Jesus came and offered his blood, it was a one-time thing. Stick with me here because we're going somewhere tonight. And I'm going to have to touch on something that some of you might be offended by. But I want to teach you the scripture and let the scripture speak for itself. But Jesus offered for one time a single sacrifice for sin. There's no more sacrifice for sin. It's already been offered once for all by his own blood. So here's what I want to do before I get to the part that's going to get some of you mad at me. I want you to help me tonight by reading some verses out loud. we got the microphone on here, so the recording should be able to pick you all up. I want to show you just a few verses that show how much the Bible says, because of the blood of Jesus, we're covered. So here, who wants to read for us Romans chapter 5, verse 9? Good Good and loud for us. Romans 5, verse 9. Don't be shy. Who's going to take Romans 5, 9? All right, Becky, you got that? Romans 5, 9. Someone else, Ephesians 1, 7. You got that one? Okay, Ephesians 1, 7. You have someone else, Colossians 1, 19 and 20. All right, you, we got, she's got Colossians 1, but you're ready. So you're going to get 1 John 1, 7. And somebody else, Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. I see your hand out. Oh, you got it? Okay, good. I was about to nominate Allison, but didn't do it. You beat her to it. All right, listen closely. Read these verses good and loud for us. And listen to how all along the scripture has been showing us that we have been covered by the blood of Jesus. Romans 5, 9. We've been justified, how? By his blood. Ephesians 1, 7. All right, we have redemption through his blood. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. Oh, this is a different one here. God was pleased to have every full, all his deity fully live in Jesus Christ, to Jesus is God, and through him to reconcile everything through his death on the cross, through his blood. Don't miss this. Remember, Jesus made it one sacrifice for sins once for all. The Bible's very clear, folks, that Jesus has already paid for the sins of the entire world. Does that mean the whole world's going to heaven? Does that mean the whole world's forgiven? Yes. Well, the, forgiveness is there. the forgiveness is there, but they haven't. anybody hasn't received it yet. But it has been paid for. Don't let people tell you that Jesus died only for the people that are going to be saved. 
The Bible's very clear. He died once for everybody. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says this, Jesus died not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the entire world. It's very clear. Jesus made one sacrifice to cover the sins of everyone at one time. It has been done. Now it's being offered as a free gift. And for those who would receive it, oh, remember that progressive revelation? Those who would by faith apply the blood, if you will, to the doorpost of your heart. When the judgment comes, you'll be spared. Why? Simply because of the blood. I'm going to have a couple more scriptures read, but let me just say something to you older generation tonight. One of the things I run across as I travel around the country and speak to churches And when I talk to older generations, I hear something that I want to make sure is not an attitude that's here tonight. I'll talk to older generations sometimes and I'll say, if you died today, would you go to heaven? And most of the time they say yes. And I'll say, that's great. How do you know? And they'll say, because I believe in Jesus and I've lived a good life. Exactly. Folks, if you add anything except the fact that I've been covered by the blood of Jesus... It's the wrong answer. You are redeemed through the blood. Life is in the blood. And there's only one person whose blood can give you life. And that's Jesus. And if you're covered in his blood, you are forgiven once for all. You don't have to worry about any more sins. They've already been covered and you have no more consciousness of your sin because it's been covered. Go to 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now the verse you just read to us there said the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In the Greek, it's a continual cleansing. Not only was I once washed, washed once for all, but that blood continues to wash me. How many of you remember Andre Crouch's old song, The Blood That Jesus Shed For Me Way Back on Calvary? will never lose its power. Remember that? Wonderful, wonderful word of that. That continually cleanses us. You've been washed, and you're being washed because of the blood of Jesus. It never loses its power. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. There you go. That's it. He's washed us by his what? His own blood. Folks, the Bible has been showing us, and we're not done. The Bible has been showing us progressive revelation all along that there needed to be bloodshed to be a covering for sin. Life is in the blood. On top of that, when you by faith apply the blood the way that God has told you to, you'll be spared. And then Jesus becomes, he shows up on the scene, if you will, and he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And all along, 
what had been a picture of what Jesus was going to do has been done already now by Jesus once for all. Go with me to John chapter 6. Because Jesus says something in John chapter 6 that actually offends many of his disciples. And because of what he says here in John 6, many of his disciples stopped following him. We're going to start in verse 35. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and you do yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Remember, back in John chapter 3, Jesus is teaching and talking to Nicodemus, and he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, and whoever looks to him will be saved. If you remember that story back in the book of Numbers, the nation of Israel was sinning. Because of that, God sent a bunch of snakes to bite them, and they were dying. And so Moses prays, and God says, here's what you do. You take some bronze, and you make a serpent out of it, and you put it up on a pole, and you hold it up. And everyone that looks to that serpent that's on the pole, if they look to it in faith, they'll be spared, and they won't be killed. And Jesus said, whoever now looks to the Son, has eternal life. Now let's keep reading in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except, the one who, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now Jesus has said crazy stuff. He says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. If you go to the next verse upon hearing, as many of his disciples said, this doesn't make any sense. Go for it. Are you, you're saying that we cannot fall from the grace of God? It's impossible. Remember what Jesus said. 
This is my Father's will that I will lose none that the Father has given me. It's impossible to fall from the grace. And we're going to get to that at the end of our study, but that's a good point. But now listen closely. We've got to deal with something here. Because some of you were raised in a denomination that on a regular weekly basis, you go take of the blood and the bread, and you were taught that it becomes his body and it becomes his blood. And that you're actually drinking Jesus' actual blood and actual body and eating his actual body. i got to say a couple of things to you from Scripture. One, first of all, what did Leviticus say very clearly about drinking blood? Don't do it. Oh, and also, when Jesus instituted what we now call the Lord's Supper, which had been the Passover meal all along, and he said, this cup that you drink is my blood, and this bread that you eat is my body. Let me ask you an honest question. Was Jesus' body whole at the time that he said that, or had it been broken? It was whole. All along, it has been to be symbolic. When we take the Lord's Supper or communion, whatever you want to call it, and we drink of the cup or we eat of the bread, it's symbolically saying, I eat of his flesh, which is my life. I drink of his blood, which is my life. But for some of you that think you have to have that special sacrament and it, because it has to be the body and it has to be. Some of you were taught that it changes when the priest waved his hand over it and became the body and the blood. Some of you were taught in a different denomination that it changed when it crossed your lips. So that's consubstantiation versus transubstantiation and all that crazy stuff. Let me just say this to you, folks. You don't have to drink his blood literally because the Bible says don't drink blood. But when you, by faith, look to Jesus for your eternal life, you drink of his blood. You eat of his flesh. And whoever looks to the Son has eternal life. So when you take communion, it's just a reminder. It's a symbolic of your trust, symbolism of your trust in him. You see it? Oh, yeah. Exactly. Drink my blood. In itself, it, made, it sounded crazy. Well, keep reading. Go down now to uh, verse 66. After this, actually, no, sorry, let's go to verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Listen closely. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who don't believe. And then said Jesus knew from the beginning. This is, the Spirit is the one who gives us understanding. Folks, as I share this with you, if you're sitting here today and you go, I still don't get it, that's because God hadn't opened your eyes to it. But if you're sitting there and you go, it makes total sense. Thank God for it. Guess what? God opened your eyes to that truth. Yeah, he explained it. But that doesn't mean they grasped it. Doesn't mean they grasped it. All right. Now, wasn't that a fun rabbit to chase? You see how we got to Leviticus 17, and I go, I can't stop. I can't leave that alone. I got to go there. Let's go back to chapter 24. There's a couple cool things in chapter 24 I want to do as we wrap up. Chapter 24 of Ezekiel. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but in verses 9 through 14, Ezekiel's told to burn the copper pot on hot coals and destroy it. Remember, he's been pulling everything out of the pot, and now he's just got the pot, and he's told to heat it up even hotter and just burn the pot and destroy it. 
And as God declares his wrath on Jerusalem for their sin, and as he states that this judgment will not be over until he satisfied his fury on them, he makes an interesting comment, though, in verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says, On account of your unclean lewdness, because I would have cleansed you, and you were not cleansed from your uncleanness, and you shall not be cleansed anymore till I've satisfied my fury upon you. Do you see the heart of God again? Even in the midst of the judgment, where he's saying, that's it, it's over, no more repent, no more opportunity for repentance, no more. But I would have, I would have, and I want to show you that God's heart is that people respond right to the last second. And I want to show you something along that line. There's always an offer of mercy and grace until the last second. As I told you, I believe we're getting real close to the judgment of the nations and judgment, Jesus' return, the rapture of the church, tribulation period, all these things that the scriptures have been showing us are going to happen. But there's still opportunity for salvation. There's still opportunity to respond. Go with me to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23 and look at verses 37 through 39. Jesus now in that same city of Jerusalem, remember, it's been destroyed, but he allowed after so many years for them to go back in. It's been rebuilt and all this stuff. They're still not under their own authority and control anymore. They're still under the Roman authority right now. But as you know, Jesus shows up on the scene. He does miracles in their presence. He fulfills prophecies, all the stuff he does in their midst. And in chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus cries and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. In other words, I wanted to, but you wouldn't let me. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Oh, by the way, this isn't talking about when he rides into the Jerusalem on the donkey. That's already happened. They won't see him again until they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When is he talking about at his return, the second coming, when he comes and sets up his kingdom. But I want to show you a little bit more. Go to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verses 32 through 44. In Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 32, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry Jesus' cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge, this charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others and he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And look at verse 44. Don't miss verse 44. Most people don't know verse 44. And the robbers, plural, who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. Both robbers were mocking him. They say, wait a minute, Jim. Isn't there a story in the Bible about one robber believing in him? Yes. But at the beginning of the crucifixion, they both made fun of him. They both mocked him. Now jump over to Luke 23. 
Luke 23, verses 32 through 43. Two others, Luke 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive him, for they do not know what they do. Now, let me just stop for a second. There's something here that Erwin Lutzer in his book, Cries from the Cross, brings out that I really want to take a second to show you. Because for years, we've always pictured Jesus on the cross going, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. But Erwin Lutzer in his book, Cries from the Cross, brings out that in the Greek, it actually reads a little bit different. In the Greek, it reads that he most likely was saying this over and over and over and over and over. In other words, the whole time that they're nailing him to the cross, as he's laid on the ground and nailing him to the cross, he most likely was mumbling or praying or saying over and over, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. As they stood him up and stuck the cross into the ground, he would continue to say it. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They didn't do. We've read it for years as this one bold statement of Jesus, but most likely he was repeating it as a prayer the whole time that he was being crucified. And both robbers were making fun of him. But as you're about to see, one of them changes his mind. And they cast lots to divide his garments. Verse 35, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were, were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you see it? They both made fun of him. But during that time on the cross, during those hours that they were there, one of them had a change of heart. One of them all of a sudden realized there's something about this man and he became a man who believed. And listen to what he says to the other guy who made fun of him still. He said, we're getting punished justly. All of a sudden, he acknowledges his sin. He realizes his sin. And he turns to Jesus, and all he does, listen closely, all he does is drink his blood and eat his flesh. How does he do it? By looking to him in faith. And he believes and he says, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. I don't have time to chase this rabbit, but folks, let me just say this. Jesus didn't descend into hell and suffer for three days. The Apostles' Creed may say that he descended into hell and three days later rose. No, -uh. Remember on the cross he said, it is finished. The telestai, which means paid in full. If he still had to suffer in hell for three days, it's not finished because he's still got to pay for more. No, no, no. He said at the end of his time on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The book of Hebrews said he went with his own blood straight into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God and offered his blood for us all. Jesus didn't descend into hell and suffer during in hell for those three days. He went straight into the presence of God and he told the thief, today you're going to be with me in paradise. But what happened? The priest, sorry, that thief, 
had a change of heart at the last second. By the way, did the priest take communion? Was the priest, sorry, I keep saying priest, thank you. Was the thief, did the thief take communion? No. Was the thief baptized? Was the thief, did he, someone help him off the cross so he'd help an old lady across the street so he could do a good deed and then put him back on the cross? Did, what did he do? He just simply believed. And that's all it is. And the progressive revelation has said that all along. God said, I'll cover your sin when I, cut, when I kill this animal. I will show you a picture of how the blood makes atonement for sin. But I will be that final sacrifice. I will be the one. And you don't have to do anything except believe. It's been done once for all. All you have to do is believe it and receive it. Isn't that good news? I think that's pretty easy to tell people, isn't it? I love you. Go tell them. 